0: And welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor of the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel, along with Robert Talese of Vanderbilt University. In our bi-weekly podcasts, we offer interviews with philosophers about their new books in ethics, metaphysics, philosophy of mind, history of philosophy, and many other areas. Today's interview is with Melinda Bonnie Fagan, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Rice University. Her new book... Philosophy of Stem Cell Biology, Knowledge in Flesh and Blood, is just out from Palgrave Macmillan and was recently selected as an outstanding academic title by Choice Magazine. Philosophy of science has come a very long way from its historically rooted focus on theories, explanations, and evidential relations in physics, elaborated in terms of a rather mythical theory, T. But even in philosophy of biology, attention has largely been on the concepts and abstract mathematics of evolutionary biology, not the in the trenches work of cell biology. Fagan's book stakes out new ground by examining the interplay of messy, complex, experimental manipulation of cells and tissues with the mathematical modeling of cells and their developmental landscapes, and also the interaction between the methods and goals of scientific knowledge production with the practical social goals of developing therapies for use in clinical medicine. She critically examines the basic concepts of stem cell biology, its experimental and collaborative methods and models, and its focus on the search for applications in clinical medicine, and considers the impact of these features on how we should think in general about scientific evidence, explanation, causality, unification, and the social aspects of the pursuit of scientific knowledge. Let's turn to the interview
1: hello Melinda welcome to new books in philosophy hello Carrie thanks so much for the opportunity to talk about the book
0: well I'm uh, I'm really excited to talk about this because so much of it is is a first in philosophy of science um, because it's you know one of the few books that I know of that kind of addresses head-on the interplay of sort of messy, complex experiment with cells and tissues, with the, you know, sort of clean and abstract mathematical, mathematical modeling of, of, you know, cell development landscapes, and then of knowledge production practices with practical goals of, of finding interventions for medical or clinical use, um, and, you know, you, you interweave these two things together in a really, um, fruitful way in terms of thinking about traditional philosophy of science topics in, you know, evidence and explanation and causality and unification and so on. Um, so before we get to all the, you know, the messy details of, <laughs> of stem cell biology and its interplay with philosophy of science in general, um, maybe you can say a word about about yourself and your interest in the, in the topic and, and how you came to write this particular book.
1: Sure. So the the interweaving you talked about, um, that's really one of the central aims, and that comes directly out of my own educational experience. I trained as a biologist before I turned to philosophy. And although I didn't work, I wasn't a stem cell researcher, I did a PhD in a stem cell laboratory. And so I spent three years working in close association with stem cell researchers. So I heard a lot about it. I went to lab meetings, I went to their talks. and, And so I absorbed some just by proximity in a sense. So I knew about that kind of work. I left the lab before the stem cell field took on its current configuration. It was right around the time human embryonic stem cells uh, were constructed in cell culture that I left biology and went traveling and decided that I wanted to change my intellectual approach, my my career to another kind of work than laboratory work. But I'd spent uh, a number of years in about eight different laboratories. My PhD was from the lab that did stem cell research. And so when I started in philosophy of science, one of the things that struck me was how little transferred from my time, my years in the laboratory, to thinking about philosophy of science, which was really shocking to me. I had assumed naively. I think a lot of scientists assume that, well, humanities are going to be very easy after I've done a degree in science. But it was actually really exhilarating on the one hand to find a subject that was totally new, that I could learn a whole new set of skills and and enjoy writing about. That was something that I missed in the lab. I loved writing and thinking through the argument. And so I got a fragment of time to do that when I wrote my dissertation. But the amount of time that I would have been able to spend doing doing the thing that I loved the most, if I'd stayed in the lab. Like it just didn't look like a workable way forward, and so I, I changed fields and started over and started another PhD, and I had to do a lot of catching up. I'd had no philosophy classes as an undergrad. And so it was a huge adjustment. I think that's part of what's going on in the book is trying to see where the connections are between the field of science, not the one that I worked in directly, but one that I knew quite well, and one that I think has features that are typical of some experimental fields. So thinking more broadly about experimental sciences, philosophy of science has had a lot less to say about experiment than theory. And so my own trajectory in studying philosophy and getting more and more comfortable with philosophical topics, learning to be a scholar in that field, I've always been interested in that original gap, that transition that I made, why it was such a distance from the work in the laboratory that I knew to philosophy of science. Yeah. And in the process of the years that I was training, of course, there were all kinds of developments in philosophy of science that in some, that offered opportunities to link the fields. And so, after this, this is the very long preamble of how I, how I came to write the book was my own scholarship had gotten to the point where I felt like I could connect them. I'd spent almost as long doing philosophy as I had biology, and so I grappled with the two fields together and really importantly I'd done a lot of teaching of philosophy of science and that as well as my own education had really helped me get a handle on the field just working in the field for close to a decade in training and then as a as a starting assistant professor and then I just I I thought initially that I would shift the project Uh, initially it was a much more modest idea I thought there would be work to do in philosophy of biology on stem cells, and I would join the discussion. So I had a little research uh, leave, I had a fellowship that I got, internal support at Rice University, and I thought I'll write a few papers, I'll start to bring again that that area of experiment, stem cell research, which is so influential and important in the sciences. There's so much discussion broadly speaking, there's so much work in ethics about stem cells, I'll bring, I'll, I'll join that discussion in philosophy of science. And what I found out when I began that project in two thousand and nine was there's nothing written and, on you know, stuff cells and fluids. You're philosophy. all by yourself, yeah. Exactly. And so the book project emerged really quite naturally from there was a clear gap. And one of the things that I was working through in the book was why, in fact, that was, because it's not as though people aren't familiar with the stem cells. People hear about them in the news and periodically, sometimes more than others, but there are all kinds of advances and debates, and those haven't gone away for, for dec- over a decade. And it was really kind of peculiar, thinking about why Why is it that there are, at the time, there are some papers now, but at the time, early 2009, there was literally nothing that I could turn up on philosophy of science and stem cell biology. And so there I was like, well, there's going to be a book to fill that gap. I can, I can do that. So the book is really intended as a start of a conversation rather than the last word or anything, anything close to the last word. And so it has a, a focus a lot like there's a topical structure to it. It's not a single argument. It's an exploration of the ways in which those two fields can bear on one another, exactly what you started out mentioning, this kind of interplay, interweaving of these two fields. And that question of how to approach stem cell biology as a philosopher of science was my own kind of methodological challenge. It's, it's not an accident that there ha- there wasn't anything. It's actually a very difficult field to figure out how to how to treat it as a philosopher science. So that was a really interesting part of the process. in the book the book is my first my first answer. Uh, well, it it certainly
0: opens up a lot of a new territory to explore. Um, one of the things you say in your introductory chapter, um, you say there is basically three overarching themes. So before we get into, you know, details of the stem cell concept and and the various topics that you, as you just mentioned, um, there are three overarching themes. One is interaction, uh, one is pluralism, um, and the other is unification. Um, And, you know, very briefly, the interaction part involves between models and experiments and then fields within biology. Um, the pluralism is uh, the use of abstract and concrete models, um, and then the unification, as a sort of counterbalance to the pluralism, is um, is this idea of unification by a focus on on translation, on on clinical application. Um, so, could you say a word about those three overarching themes?
1: Yeah, and and I like the way you describe. You kind of encapsulated them. That's very much how I was thinking of them. So as I said, the book is structured. Uh, there's there's less as a one long argument and more as an exploration of different topics. But these three themes are kind of the organizing uh, lines of the book as a whole. The interaction aspect, the idea that we get knowledge from putting different kinds of components together, is one of the very basic ideas it's what i 'm doing with these three themes is kind of characterizing the stance or viewpoint that i 'm taking on philosophy of oh, I'm sorry on stem cell biology, so getting back to that, how do I approach it? these three themes are kind of characters of my own stance that I wanted to lay out as clearly as possible in the introduction. So for interaction, that idea that we can take different things, put them together, and gain some understanding of something new, that's something that I think is characteristic of the biology as we understand it, cells doing this, cell interactions with our environment. Similar kind of interactive aspect happens with our models of the cells and with our practices, the scientific practices that produce those models. And then philosophically, I wanted to use that idea to organize my own approach to the book. So it's split into three parts. In the first, I use philosophy of science, these new ideas in philosophy of science, to examine stem cell biology, to gain insights into that field and give a kind of conceptual map of it in part two of the book, I turn that around. So interaction I mean as a kind of symmetric relation or a mutual relation. That's that's one of the the ways I'm understanding that theme. And so I turn it around and use stem cell biology as a case to get insights that bear on current debates in philosophy of biology in particular. So about model organisms, about genes, about the role of the social in experimental fields. And so part two of the book is, is that. And part three is where quite questions of unification kind of come to the fore. I'll say a little bit more about how the the pluralism and unification of these sort of balancing balancing themes. But unification is something that philosophy, uh, sorry, stem cell biology is kind of looking toward, but really hasn't emerged yet. Part three of the book is looking at stem cell science in connection to other fields. So I start with some simple and abstract philosophy of science, and I build outward and complicate the picture as the book goes forward. And so the whole book was designed structurally to kind of exemplify this interactive relationship that I think also structures a lot of the contents of the book, the science, the, the way we understand the biology, how we Go about understanding the biology and then this relation between models so this brings us to the, the pluralism and I'm thinking of pluralism specifically in relations of very many different kinds of models this is one of the key insights in philosophy of science that I wanted to really draw on and bring to bear if there's one philosophy of science idea that I use to orient my approach to stem cell research it is modeling approach but instead of characterizing my theme as models there's so many aspects. Of models and so many different kinds of philosophical issues that emerge from them. I really wanted to stress the pluralism, the diversity, because it's one of the things that seems to be fundamental or central or significant. I'm not sure exactly which word I want to use at this stage, but uh, for characterizing stem cell biology, the diversity and the variety within it of scientific fields, of terminology, of methods, of experimental entities, and even getting a handle on what a stem cell is, you run into this diversity that's quite bewildering at first glance. So that was one of the, the idea of making sense of this diversity in a way that doesn't require whittling everything down to one single answer, but in fact, acknowledging how these different strands come together, these different kinds of models interact with one another. That seemed to be one of the one of the central things. And I see that kind of attention to pluralism and interactions between these different kinds of representations over and over and over again in, in different facets of mm-hmm. stem cell biology. And then the counterbalance to that is where does our knowledge kind of come together? Where's the kind of synthesis of these different different strands different pieces different representations and that that comes more to the fore toward the end of the book because i think a lot of that is work that's still very much under construction in stem cell science itself mm-hmm. and so here i'm doing one of the things a philosopher has the luxury of doing of looking looking forward and speculating Without having a lab that depends on my speculations, uh, speculating about what the field will look like, might look like, some productive directions it could go, and to help give a balance to that diversity, I think looking toward unification, a unified effort toward these clinical translation um, results uh, cures and clinical clinical methods is one of the things that the field is, is very committed to and could be made more explicit and maybe that's one of the areas I think would be most exciting to look at going forward the book kind of ends at that point but there are, I wanted to open up many more areas of terrain for study um, not just by me but by other scholars in philosophy of science and other fields as well
0: so one of the um, okay let's speaking about the the stem cell, concept itself which which you also call a model um, so now you know sort of you begin with talking about the stem cell concept um, and you, you call it a model you contrast that with theory you know you say stem cell biology is a science that, that has models but lacks theories I mean you can you know elaborate on that um, um, but what what is the stem what is this model theory distinction that you're drawing um, and what is the what is the stem cell concept itself I mean you 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 argue that it's it's vague um, there's a general sort of you know indication of cells that has, have certain capacities of, of self-renewal and their ability to give rise to differentiated cells um, but th- but it still remains problematic on your on your view so could you could you elaborate on the the stem cell concept as a model you know comparing that with theory, and then why the concept itself is is you know vague not not well um, elaborated
1: yeah this is this is exactly the the starting point chapter chapter two, right after the introduction. This is how I decided to begin <laughs> to get a handle on stem cell biology, and I think it's important, again, in keeping with the model's approach, to keep in mind the, the purpose uh, that any model has. This is one of the insights, of course, that philosophers of science working well before me have, have attended to, that the purpose of a model has to be in view with any kind of discussion and evaluation of it. And one of the things, again, to try and get a handle on stem cell biology, what is the science like? Why and and why was there no philosophy of science before I on on this subject before I worked on it in stark opposition uh, to all the work on ethics of embryo research and history and cultural studies many many studies of many aspects of stem cell biology but not the philosophy of science side and the the kind of facile answer is that they lack it, stem cell biology lacks theories it lacks the marks that philosophers usually look for when they're getting not only their, their main focus of analysis, looking at the structure of theories and how science gets to theories and, and justifies them, but how do you even begin to engage with it? If there's no sort of set theory that's at the center that an, an outsider can pick out and understand in a valuable way, then it seems like there, it's just very hard to get a purchase on it. And this gets right to that... Issue of how to characterize stem cell research, as you, exactly as you said, there's a very well, accept, widely accepted general definition of stem cell, which, just as you said, is it's two capacities. You can the cell can self renew; it can make more cells like itself, so make more stem cells, divide to produce more cells like itself, and it can differentiate to produce more specialized cells. And those two, it's having both of those capacities that makes us, that that defines the stem cell in general. And that definition, it's not unanimously accepted, but it's very much the most common. And you see that definition repeated in a lot of introductory glossaries and very accessible treatments of stem cell biology. Here's where things get, get kind of funny. After you look at that general definition, Within the science itself, there's almost nothing else to say except looking at the details of the experimental results and the detailed compendia of those that appear in standard textbooks. These are a kind of graduate level re- research source, they're research tomes, they're not something that someone without a huge background in the field could even read without a glossary looking through the, the jargon. And, there's, and they tend to be hundreds and hundreds of pages long, 800 or 900 pages long. And it's a compendium of you know, here's what's going on in the, in the field, and it has to be updated every couple of years. So there's this huge gap in stem cell biology. I think this is a feature of many other fields as well. I don't think stem cell research is unique in this. There's a very simple characterization, that general definition and then there's all the experimental details, which someone who works in the field can understand pretty readily, but very few people would be able to comprehend all of the different strands of it. And someone coming out the field as a philosopher, a philosopher of science, there's nothing in the middle <laughs> to to really get a purchase on. And I, I saw my task as, as that. I wanted to give a kind of abstract, a philosopher's characterization of stem cell biology that would go beyond that simple definition and tell us something about the major features of the field and that taking the stem cell concept as a model was my way of doing that. What's so interesting, so I wouldn't say so much that stem cell biology has a problem, like the concept is problematic, except in relation to the goal of wanting to understand the field in a way that goes a little deeper than the general definition, but doesn't have to go all the way into the experimental details, which are going to change very quickly anyway. That's another that we're getting to that answer of why it is that philosophers hadn't engaged with the field is incredibly technical and variable over time and across experimental approaches. And so that was the first challenge. And how do you make sense philosophically of an experimental field like this? And I took the general stem cell concept as the best way in, the simplest starting point, and I explicated that general concept of a cell that can produce more cells like itself and give rise to these more differentiated cells, I gave as simple and abstract a conceptual treatment of that definition as possible. And I very self-consciously called it, here's an abstract, minimal model of the stem cell. Mm -hmm. So I'm actually there doing a kind of philosophical intervention. It's not something that... (laughs) People in the field talk about it in that way. I think the general definition is very familiar to stem cells, but they wouldn't think they don't themselves use this abstract model. I think it's the response has been kind of interesting. They think of it as really simplistic and kind of obvious, and it doesn't need to be said because, of course, we know what you know the general definition is. But this is where I think another of these interesting sort of differences between the fields comes out. Philosophers are very familiar with these abstracts representations and tools. So I I built it. I kind of construct this abstract model in chapter two. And the purpose is to articulate and, and explicate these basic concepts of stencil biology in ways that the scientists themselves aren't aren't doing and their goals are different. They're not they're not trying to. But I wanted to give a unified treatment. So the theme of unification at this point starts something I'm putting there. I'm putting there on the field. I think this familiar general stem cell concept, instead of thinking about it as a rigorous definition, it certainly doesn't work as necessary and sufficient condition. I mean, I I don't try to do that very far, but it, it clearly doesn't work. There's an early treatment in the book that shows, you know, if you try to treat that simple general definition like a set of necessary and sufficient conditions, it doesn't really match Anything and there you end up with a lot of questions, a lot of problems with vagueness. It looks like it would be kind of unmanageable, mm-hmm. and so that the, I, I think of it as a model, and that's part of the the reason for doing that. This general unifying structure, really, mm-hmm. that then then the question appears. All right, I've got this abstract model. How does it link up to the experimental entities that the scientists are working with? And I think having the simple model there and specifying how does it link with experiments. So one of the first things that happens is since I've designed the model to be as minimal as possible, I pick out the variables that are needed to make substantive the notions of self-renewal and differentiation. They're, they're actually concepts that involve comparison across cell generations. Cells give rise to other cells, and they're either the same as the parent or different than the parent, more like a mature cell. So it's a, they're complicated concepts. So I end up with a list of variables that need to be specified in that, in that model to connect it to real cases, Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a then there's a lot more to say about there. That's my start point of departure for a lot of questions about evidence and experiment in stem cell research. Um,
0: so let me let me just ask about um, one of the what um, of the interesting points you make um, regarding the embryonic stem cell and adult stem cell distinction. I mean, a lot of what the public Hears about stem cells, or what you know, people in general. I mean, who, who aren't working in the field, um, you hear about stem cell biology, or at least stem cells, and you, you immediately start thinking about all the controversies about harvesting stem cells from from embryos, uh, human embryos. Um, and you don't really, you know, you you explicitly, you know, this is a focus in philosophy of science. It's not, you know, on these other, you know, ethical issues. Um, but you, there is an interesting criticism that you make of that embryonic at. Distinction. You call it a red herring, um, and it should be replaced by a pluripotent versus tissue-specific distinction. Could you explain that a bit? The, your your problem, I guess, with the uh, with the original distinction, and then your replacement.
1: Yeah, so this is actually one of the results of that model mm-hmm. that, that I just spoke about and, and asking again how it connects to experiments. There's a basic design of stem cell experiments that involves extracting the cells from an organism, multicellular organism, putting measuring them in one environment and then putting them in a second environment that can measure their differentiation potential. And after that general characterization of how do you, how do you find a stem cell, the experiments that, that show us the stem cells, that's differentiation. Self-renewal can be handled in one of, or is handled, I guess that would be a better way to say it, is handled in practice in one of two ways. It's either built in at the beginning, the cells that are extracted from the organism are self-renewing, they're not even measured unless they're self-renewing, That's the kind of method that gives us pluripotent stem cells. That means that's a cell that can differentiate to form any kind of stem cell in the body. So it's got this unlimited potential in terms of the kinds of cells that it can become, as opposed to a cell that can divide to produce or different, sorry, become more specialized, give rise to more specialized cells that are limited to a particular tissue or organ, and the classic case there is blood and immune cells. We can take blood out or and irradiate an animal to remove its immune system and then put in new cells that can regenerate, reconstitute the immune system. But there's been an enormous amount of debate about exactly what the differentiation potential is of particular kinds of cells. Maybe we could harvest the the cells from adult organs Leaving embryos completely out of the picture and get pluripotent cells that way. So that's the debate. Just the way you, that is, it's usually seen. There's embryonic stem cells that come from embryos. That's that source. That's where the controversy is about uses of embryos and research come from. Versus finding stem cells in adult animals or non-embryonic animals. And that's one of the first things that you you come across reading about the different kinds of stem cells. There's this it looks like a very clear divide between two kinds of stem cell, the adult and embryonic and two different branches of stem cell research. So that's the way that the field is usually is often represented and that's figured in legal discussions, even though there's an injunction on embryonic stem cell research because it was doing harm allegedly to adult stem cell research and the thing that i find troubling about that is the idea that there are different branches of stem cells that are alternatives this goes against that that interaction theme again that it seems in many of the stem cell laboratories the idea of an opposition between two opposed alternatives of kinds of stem cells and methods of working with stem cells. That doesn't really characterize the science very well and there are epistemic reasons for that. So a lot of my arguments in the book come come to that conclusion in, in a variety of ways that the field, it works by using a lot of different models and exploring the connections between them. So this whole picture of stem cell research is bifurcated into two branches that can be thought of as competitors or opposed. I think I wanted to I wanted to argue against that and my way of arguing against that is consequences from that general stem cell model. What I do and what I what I examine is the way that self renewal is brought into these experimental setups it's either built in from the beginning or measured at the end that conceptually is a much more fundamental distinction than the age of the source organism. Mm-hmm. And, and in fact, the idea that there is one adult stem cell is also very misleading, or one embryonic stem cell is very misleading. There's a lot of variety in both of those. And so, while it's a variable, the age of the source organism is one variable among many. There's the species, there's the part of the organism or or cell that the original sample is taken from there's all kinds of other variables that go into the characterization of any particular stem cell as well the features that are measured and the kinds of differentiation that are measured and so all of all these other details are also important in specifying what kind of a stem cell it is so that adult embryonic distinction doesn't cut deep very deep conceptually Whereas this difference in the way self-renewal is related to differentiation in the experiment, these are the basic concepts, that processes that define the stem cell, the ability to self-renew and differentiate. So these two kinds of experiment, self-renewal imposed at the beginning or measured at the end alongside differentiation, I think that's a much deeper difference conceptually. There is nothing preventing one laboratory from doing both, and in fact, many do. So I don't think it maps onto a clear kind of sociological difference in the sciences. But it's an important difference in the experimental design and therefore in the kind of stem cell that emerges from it. And in practice, that distinction maps very closely onto pluripotent in the the self-renewal imposed at the beginning Mm -hmm. and tissue specific when a stem stem cell is found in in a tissue and measured later. But whether that association will hold up in future is actually an open question, I think. So, So the argument against adult embryonic distinction isn't so much that the distinction makes no sense, but that it's part of this larger image of the science as this kind of simply bifurcated two competing research strands. And I wanted to find a way of, actually, I don't think that's true of the science that, that we do have. It, that's a construct that is often serves political uses. But uh, the characterization of the science that comes out of looking at the basic stem cell concepts in this modeling framework shows a deeper difference between these two kinds of experiment. And thinking about how self-renewal and differentiation are related in the experiments that give us, that show us the stem cells, I think is more incisive Mm -hmm. as a way of characterizing differences in the field than that kind of Embryo adult distinction.
0: So let me let me just um, sort of skip ahead a little bit in the book to continue the discussion of uh, pluripotency and tissue specificity. Oh, sure. Which you, I mean, you get to that specifically um, uh, later on um, in the context of a discussion of of model organisms. You know, I think of you know fruit flies or knockout mice. You know, you get offers for these things via email all the time. Um, uh, one of the interesting things, uh, well, there's a, a lot of interesting things going on in that chapter. Um, uh, one is is that you. Th- you discuss, you know, how the idea of a model organism is is sort of epistemically uh, problematic and, and discuss their role in biology um, in interesting detail. Um, and another is that you consider a stem cell line, excuse me, a line, a model organism. Um, and that, that was, you know, sort of kind of interesting, you know, from a... From I guess I suppose an ontological point of view. Um, so, could you, you, you know, since we're on this pluripotent tissue-specific uh, uh, discussion to begin with, maybe you could say a bit about, you know, how you see model organisms, you know, the the problems with that, and and why a stem cell line should be considered a, a model organism.
1: Great. Yeah. And this is this is I I take that that idea that I sketch more abstractly in part one of the book about the the implications of the model and in part two I go much more in depth into the particular experimental methods so I treat the pluripotent and tissue specific Sets of experiments, approaches in separate chapters and in relation to different issues in philosophy of biology. And exactly as you said, the model organism issue is something that many philosophers and historians, I think there the line blurs a little bit between history and philosophy of science, studying the role of model organisms something that, that many scholars have done and it's been really illuminating for characterizing biology in the 20th century in particular. So the model organisms you mentioned, there's the knockout mice, there's fruit flies, there's bacteria. So much of our biological knowledge is actually based on a very, very small sample of organisms. And the, the simple picture, which philosophers before working before me have problematized really nicely, the simple picture is that Yes, we're learning about biological processes. We study the model organisms because they're very easy to use. They're small and accessible, and they have rapid breeding cycles. They're cheap. Um, they have all these desirable properties, and they exhibit the features we're interested in in some very accessible way. Like the squid giant axon is a great example there. It's very, it's really big, and so you can get access and study it more easily. And then you can generalize from the model organisms. So that that sense of model is that it's standing in. It's representing many, many, many other other organisms natural populations and maybe many other species and so that classic picture for some biological phenomena seems to work really well but it doesn't work for development there are some really interesting arguments in in the bio literature before well before i came on the scene about this where exactly the that show in some really important cases exactly the features that make an organism, a fruit fly or a bacterium or an invertebrate mouse, exactly the things that make them good to study in the lab make their development atypical. Mm-hmm. They develop in atypical ways. And so they're not going to be an unproblematic representative. And for stem cells, what's being investigated is also an aspect of development. This is something I think you... We talk, we've talked about or, or started to talk about earlier too, that the idea that the stem cell concept is not just a single cell, but it involves this changing into something else in a whole cell lineage, that's a kind of microcosm of the developmental process. So I think of stem cells as, if we understand stem cells, we understand a great deal about development in multicellular organisms. And so one of the ways that we study development is to, Make it really accessible. Here's where it gets interesting to think about stem cell lines cultured in in laboratories in little plates in plastic plates as a kind of organism for studying the very simple processes of development. It's like the simplest way of thinking about a multicellular organism at early stages. You've just got cells that are dividing in a plate and they self renew. That's that feature. They're they're reproducing clonally and dividing and dividing, and they have features that look like embryonic cells. They're not embryos, but they look similar to embryonic cells in certain ways. And then if you put them in other environments, they can differentiate to form any kind of cell type that you would find in the in the human body. And so the cell line is created by continuously passaging a sample from a plate again or a culture. The cell culture it doesn't have to be on a solid surface. Uh, from liquid media to liquid media to liquid media so there's a series of you know artificial bodies that are created in the laboratory mm-hmm. and so it's derived from a multicellular organism but it just shares that point of origin so what i'm doing in that chapter is arguing first that the role that these cell lines play Is very similar to the classic model organism role. I don't try in that chapter to argue, strictly speaking, from an ontological point of view, especially that they should be considered organisms. That's something I've thought about in later work and I think is worth thinking about further. I like, I actually, in this, in the, in the chapter, I, I hedge a little bit and say, if you don't want to insist to call them organisms for some reason, you can call them a model system. What's important is they're playing this role and that they have this, feature that makes generalization very difficult because mm-hmm. it gets back to that variety and diversity of models how do we link them together so in where I end up in that chapter what I'm interested in is less a question of do they really count as organisms although I think that's a that's a question that should be asked and it will challenge our ideas about organisms and biological individuality in interesting ways in the in the book chapter, I'm interested in characterizing how are all these different models of stem cell lines related to one another, that diversity, that pluralism of the models that come out of different experimental setups, because you think about, oh, embryonic stem cells are one thing. They're not. (laughs) There are many variants. There are many different lines. And then there are types that those lines cluster into, and we're still figuring out relations between them. So much of the chapter, and I think that's where I think a lot of our knowledge of stem cells comes from, is not a model that we can then generalize straightforwardly to all other kinds of stem cells or organisms. We have to characterize each one and compare and contrast them. We learn probably more from the differences between these different cultured stem cells than we do from their similarities. So in the chapter, I go over the processes by which these pluripotent stem cell lines were constructed, and they were constructed to be similar to one another. So they create a kind of network that has very important sort of generative similarities and and connections and continuities, but they also differ from one another. and We discover the differences. You might remember when when, um, induced pluripotent stem cells, that's one of these kinds of cultured stem cells, they were first created in 2006 and represented at first as a way of Getting pluripotent stem cells without any embryo work. You can take a mature cell, mm-hmm. alter its uh, gene expression patterns, and then get it to become pluripotent, which is an amazing result. And so, at first, again, this, this the kind of simplified picture of, oh, now we have an alternative way. We don't need the embryonic stem cells anymore. We can get, we can not, we don't have to use them. And what you see instead is that, that that's not, in fact, what's happened. And the way of thinking, of if we think about how the models have been constructed and used for for decades, really, starting in the mid-20th century, when cell culture was getting routinized and these tools were being applied to mammalian cells, you can see that the induced pluripotent stem cells were constructed to be similar to embryonic stem cells and also cancer stem cells, certain kinds of cancers. And then the differences started to emerge, mm-hmm. and we learn much more about how these developmental processes work, how these developmental mechanisms work, by examining these variations, the subtle differences in developmental capacities from these different kinds of stem cells. And of course, there's different kinds of induced pluripotent stem cells, depending on what kind of cell you take them from to start with. And so we're still at this stage of characterizing general patterns among these differences. I think that would be something, that is something the field is and should be should be looking for. What are the general patterns? But we still are exploring the, the territory, really. Mm-hmm. We're kind of covering the, the, the landscape of biological possibility with a tapestry of different models. Mm. So the last thing we want is to excise part of that we would impoverish our picture by taking away a whole, a strand of that tapestry. So that's, that's the idea. I think you the image that emerges, if you look at the way that these different stem cell lines in their, in their baffling variety, our uh, are system, our are at least potentially systematically related to one another. That's what the science is is at now. That's what the science is doing. So that's the part of the character, that richer characterization of the science that I wanted to have emerging um, later on in the book, building outward from that simple model to begin with.
0: Um, so one one of the things you just mentioned was about you know if have you have, if you have a particular cell, you you have it in one one culture and it and it does one thing. You know <gasps> it you know clones itself or and then you put it into another uh, environment, and it you know it uh, creates differentiated cells um, yes. and so there 's a really important you know difference there in in the environments and how that affects the behavior of the cell um, and i I see this as um, uh, in a sense you you address a s- similar sort of issue in in chapter six where uh, you're talking about the, the general, the gene dogma where, you know, genes sort of control development um, where they cause phenotypic traits you know, the gene for X sort of, uh, you know, idea um, and that of course has sort of gone away to, an, to some extent uh, in terms of epigenetic models and thinking about the interplay between the you know, the gene, the genetic material and the environment it's put in. Um, so maybe you can say something about uh, your analysis of, of, you know, of genes and uh, why, uh, what undermines the idea that a gene is somehow has this privileged role um, in development. Um, and you also introduce and talk about uh, Waddington's uh, an example of the developmental landscape. Right. So maybe you can. I mean, that's a very wide-ranging question, but um, uh, I just wanted you to say something about about genes and the the problem with the the gene for X, you know, sort of uh, idea and the idea that somehow a gene, you know, has this privileged role, even if you even if you acknowledge the role of the environment.
1: Great. Yeah. This is this was one of the topics that there's a lot of great philosophy of biology work on already and so it appears in part 2 it's here's a discussion that's already there's been a lot of work on the nature of the gene and a lot of excellent critical Examination of the idea that there is one thing that we're that we're talking about when we say gene. I I used in particular my my chapter here was influenced by Lenny Moss's book What Genes Can't Do. He draws a really nice distinction there between that gene for X, where X is a phenotype, mm-hmm. which is usually what when people hear the term is, is what's meant. It's a gene for some kind of trait the organism has or maybe a cell, if you're thinking about simple cases, that central dogma of the gene makes the protein that makes something happen in the cell or maybe just the protein and that's all that you're looking at. It's like maybe the simpl- most simplified version of the phenotype. And that's a simple model for understanding development, but we know we know that it's too simple <laughs> to understand how developmental processes work. And so... My argument about genes uh, builds on a lot of work in philosophy of biology that had already been very critical of any kind of a simple gene concept. But there's been some excellent, really interesting work that I also wanted to respond to that defends a kind of privileged role for genes, even with all the complexities about development and the importance of epigenetic uh, processes that, that are coming to light and are one of the main foci of research in biological sciences. Mm -hmm. And so both uh, Jim Woodward and Ken Waters have, in slightly different ways, uh, used notions about the manipulability theory of causality and difference-making as a way of vindicating a special role for genes in development. So they were kind of my targets. My arguments about genes in in that chapter 6 were negative. It was, no, there's stem cell biology does not support a privileged role for genes in development. What it supports is a picture much more like what Waddington gives us, where there are developmental processes, the the top side of the landscape where you can have cells moving through a, a topology, a sequence of hills and valleys that represent the options. And then underneath are interacting networks. I think that, that image of the landscape with its two sides is something that systems biologists have been using, and that, that really struck me. Um, that was one of the starting points for this That this part of the project, was that I noticed that stem cell biologists and systems biologists were using a model that was developed in the 1930s and published in 1957, which is really unusual in in the sciences where you, you're lucky if you see a citation to something five years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that got me thinking about what it is about Waddington's model that people are, are interested in and responsive to one of the reasons that I think it's it's appealing and useful is because what's underlying the developmental processes is an interacting network of the kind of the kind of network that we're just beginning to build in models uh, many of them mathematical for for understanding development in a systems perspective and if you take that interactive aspect as, as the way of thinking about development, then the idea that there's one gene doing something, get back to that, that gene 4X, that that's going that there's going to be a privileged role for a few genes that are somehow the drivers of development, that doesn't really find its way into that picture. And so you've got two sort of alternative pictures of development, the kind of linear, the gene is causing this. You can map uh, a sequence, a molecular uh, DNA sequence to some kind of a trait. That would be the traditional kind of linear view. Or, in fact, what development is, is emerging out of an interactive network of many genes and their products working together. I think the latter view is a much better characterization of what it looks like from stem cell research and allied fields, what we're dealing with in biological systems. And so I'm arguing in that chapter that the, the traditional kind of linear picture where genes play this privileged role doesn't really fit the science in, in stem cell biology. And it's part of that linear picture is one of these simplified views that has been useful, but we are now seeing we can put aside and mm-hmm. use other models. Waddington's landscape is a, is a representative kind of or simple representation of the kind of model that I think we're moving toward. And so I'm no way the first philosopher of biology to make that argument. In fact, I'm following probably one of the, one of the more general trends, the idea that the special role of genes... Is an idea that's not as useful anymore as it was in the 20th century, that 21st century biology is going to, to rethink the way that organismal and cellular processes are controlled. Mm-hmm. Not so much in terms, certainly not in terms of a list of single genes. But that's still it's it's a really interesting case in which the the philosophy and the science. There's been a lot of discussion about these issues in Philbio, and so I could join a debate and actually take I think one of the one of the prominent positions, but bring the stem cell case to bear on it, and then connect it to these issues in, in systems biology as well. Well, Lenny.
0: Uh, speaking of systems biology, um, in, um, I think it's Chapter 9, you look at how the stem cell work, stem cell biology, and systems biology un- interact. And... Um, this is a really critical and very interesting issue because, you know, it involves, you know, how do you get from these, you know, these uh, very specific experimental context of manipulating tissue and cell? And then, you know, those sorts of that, that sort of science, connecting that with the very abstract mathematical models that are increasingly used in biology at the systems level or Oh, the system's level is, is kind of that that's a, not a very precise way to speak because the cell is a system, right? So we're, we're both talking about cells, but we're talking about them from very different perspectives. And what you do in that chapter is try to connect them, you know, and um, somehow moving from um, some sort of mechanistic explanation of the cell with all its details um, to some sort of a, a wiring diagram and then to some sort of formalization of the wiring diagram into the dynamical equations of the mathematical modeling um, so this is a very you know, as I understand is a very you know kind of a live issue within biology itself of you know the experimentalists versus the mathematicians um, yes um, yeah so can you you know, so I think this is a really crucial kind of uh, um, introduction to a very important issue within the science, uh, but it 's also a very fruitful sort of way to begin to see how these two very different approaches to essentially the same thing, the cell, um, you know conflict and then how they might actually come to interact so can you ex- explain a bit about about your kind of the way you interweave these two very different, you know, uh, social cultures of science as well as, you know, how they're approaching issues of explanation.
1: Great. Yeah, this was I this chapter is in the third part of the book because it's deals with science that's really just getting started with stem cells. The connection to systems biology is still quite limited, and so I'm I'm sketching what I think the explanations will probably look like based on the efforts that are, that are already out there in practice. And many of them, in fact, I think nearly all the ones I've seen use Waddington's model as a, as a way of orienting. And so I've, I've followed them there. This is also uh, an issue. So I'm focusing on the stem cell systems biology interface between these two fields. But just as you said, it's a, it's a case where there's a much broader significance For philosophers and scientists generally because this trend of increasing participation of people trained in physics and chemistry and computer science and informatics and mathematical model building sciences into biology is one of the most exciting changes that I've seen since I left the field. I've been watching from the outside, seeing how mathematical approaches are becoming, or at least Are sought to become integrated with experimental approaches. I think stem cell biology. For, for reasons we've talked about earlier, is is experimental in this way that's very context-dependent, very focused on the details of the methods. Even what counts as a stem cell or what, is, what the stem cell is in any particular case is tied to details of the experimental method, the things, the properties that we're comparing and the organism it comes from. And so how do you go, in a way this returns us to the original challenge, of how do you go from all of that welter of detail to... A more general, abstract understanding—the kind of thing a mathematical model could be could be built around—and the kind of thing that philosophers are usually looking for. So there's there's a sense in which the this trend in the sciences, this uh, question and exploration of connecting mathematical modeling with experimental biology, is all is extremely interesting for philosophers of science who are used to dealing with mathematical models and are are much more comfortable with that aspect of of the science. And so for me, it's really interesting to see how things work in the science. And then there's philosophical debates to engage with as well, because other philosophers have looked at systems biology and the implications for combining mathematical modeling and experiment. And so it's a great topic. Exactly. As you said, the science is still moving forward. There's a lot to say, and there's a broader discussion. To have it, to have as well, and so I'm bringing a very stem cell emphasizing approach to it, but that doesn't exhaust, of course, systems biology. Uh, the point you made about the cell being the kind of the, the focus, I think, is exactly right. From from this, the systems approaches I've seen today uh, or yeah, recently, there's a focus on the a single cell and then explaining its behavior either metabolically or in developmental, different timescales, less often evolutionarily, although in principle there's no reason you couldn't do that too, but explaining a a single cell's behavior in terms of these interacting networks. And one of the things I argue in this chapter is, is that that progression from all of the details to a simple wiring diagram that, I would say, extracts the key interactions, keeps those in the picture And then represents those in the form of equations that can be used to generate an overall characterization of the system level. And so here's where I think think the mathematical models are indispensable for understanding development in this way. Just because we're not able to put all the pieces together and make the connection between all of the interacting gene expression products... And or environmental factors because you can you can include those too, mm-hmm. and the system level what's going on at the cell what the cell is doing, we our models can't really do yet that yet either this is still science that's that's just getting going, but the pattern of what these explanations. I think will look like is given by the the Waddington's landscape model with the top side what the cell is doing and the underside, the controlling networks. And what you want is a mathematical model that derives predictions about the top from the underlying networks. And we can't intuit those predictions. We need technical help. We need the mathematical models to do that. So I I, I think that's the way that the experimental work that informs all the details that the mathematical models rest on and the cell behavior we use to test and and connect the two levels, there's a a huge importance of experiment. It's not as though you suddenly switch from working with experiments in cells and molecules to the mathematical models. Instead, the mathematical model provides a really crucial part of this larger explanation that is still, I think, very much the same kind of explanation you get in molecular biology and cell biology where it arises out of experimental manipulations of the cells and the molecules. So that's, that's my own view that in fact there's not going to be a transformation to suddenly put, studies of cell physiology and metabolism and development on some kind of a mathematical footing mm-hmm. or principles of chemistry and physics there are plenty of scientists who claim that, that that is what we should do and so this is a debate that exactly as you said is ongoing and very exciting so I have a position in this in this, this debate that's informed by looking at stem cells taking the stem cell biology as, as the starting point and examining how these approaches, could productively fit together. And my my view is that the mathematical modeling is indispensable but also has a very constrained role within these explanations. That it's it's another it's a another complicated kind of mechanistic explanation, but very much the same kind of explanation that we see in many branches of biology, molecular biology, cell developmental biology.
0: So we're we're um, getting know. close to the end. So I, I do want to get to your your last chapter, um, which gets closer to the relationship between uh, stem cell biology and the you know and clinical medicine. Um, and uh, um, there you sort of you focus on um, how that relationship is very entrenched, um, much more so than many philosophers of science are used to um, to talking about, in fact, in what I know of, you know, discussions of medicine within philosophy of science, it's more from the point of view of, you know, is medicine a science, or is it so imbued with values that it doesn't count as a science, or because its aims are practical, it's somehow not a knowledge-producing enterprise, and that's what characterizes a science. Um now that's uh, you know how, how do you see the relationship between stem stem cell biology and then clinical medicine and um how do you think your view kind of alters the way we should think about you know the relation between science and non-science
1: Great so this last chapter is is in mo- in more than any other chapter. I'm looking forward and it's it's opening questions rather than providing answers. But the the main argument, the argument I do give there is exactly on the point that you raised about the role of values in science. And so I connect this to the debate, again, the debate in philosophy of science about is there a, an epistemic core that's value-free, that, that should be uh, free of ethical, political, social values, and then the question about how to characterize the values that are in this core, they're purely epistemic or something else. Mm-hmm. And then that line between science and non-science has often been drawn in accordance with that distinction. Um, there's a some really interesting challenges in philosophy of science to the idea that there's any value-free core of science, that in fact values that have to do with our views about a good life and risks and harms are essentially part of the evidence-gathering evidence, uh, evidence gathering and weighing process. And so the idea that you can't draw a sharp line between different kinds of values and their roles in science. There's a lot of views, uh, a lot of arguments in, on different angles of that debate. So what I do, uh, I sketch the debate, and very quickly, and there's there's many subtleties that I don't get into in this chapter, which is short, but shorter than any of the others. It's my my stopping point um, for this book. But I argue that stem cell biology can be thought of as a science that is actually constituted by... As, as a single science by its clinical values. And the clinical values being the the aim of developing stem cell therapies, either having stem cells directly or products that come out of stem cell research be used to improve human lives, to treat or cure conditions that we don't have effective treatments for today. And so the hopes, this is getting into the, one of the aspects of stem cell bi- biology that's very familiar, the hopes for future clinical breakthroughs, and most of those are are speculative. It's an extremely speculative idea. So I've characterized the science in the book up to that point to indicate something about why it is that it's so hard to get the science to, to delivering these cures. There's fe- there's evidential challenges that arise from the stem cell concept. There's this disunity and diversity. And so I want to give a sense of the subtleties and difficulties and challenges of the science that an outsider, not steeped in the, the details of the methods, can, can grasp. But I wanted to finish with uh, the original focal aim of the whole field. And I think what knits all this, uh, these different experimental approaches and methods. Into one field rather than just uh, a kind of technique for making cells and showing how their behaviors change, is the clinical goal. So I argue, and it's it's not an unassailable argument by any mm-hmm. means. It's much more speculative. I'm finishing finishing the, the chapter here. It's much more an invitation to future work, I think, than a than a final. You know, here's my view, but. One the way I wanted to finish is this proposal. That's I guess what I would how I would characterize it. That stem cell biology is a science. I don't know what you would gain by saying it isn't one. It's you know, that's that's a, a related question too. But at least in in our current situation, it counts as a science by all the criteria that the practitioners would would use, and it's constituted as a single thing, in a sense, by the shared goal of therapeutic values. So I'm going to argue for this new new role for clinical therapeutic values in science. They're actually playing a role that's usually thought to be occupied by theory. Mm-hmm. Getting right back to the theory of what happens in a science without theories. Uh, there's much more to say about that issue, but I, I again, you'd make this speculative proposal that this unifying role which is in many fields mm-hmm. and especially once philosophers have been studying occupied by a theory in stem cell biology that's played by clinical values mm. or goals that are understood might say more clearly goals that are underpinned by clinical values and so that's it that's my finishing kind of speculative proposal but I think the connection between stem cell research the what's often called basic biology and clinical research, there's no bright line between those because the clinical goal has been an influence in aspects of the methods and the standards that the field has used for many, many years and in many, many ways. There's just a lot more work to do in teasing out the way in which clinical values and goals have impacted stem cell biology, I only kind of sketch the the importance of it in this final chapter, but I think that's one of the most important things to develop going forward, and I would hope that other other scholars would be would be interested. I know it actually the question of the clinical aspect is in some ways closer to the work that's already out there on stem cell biology. And so I think there's a lot of really exciting work to do for humanities and social science scholars and interested in these issues going forward.
0: So when, we, are, we are out of time, <laughs> uh, but uh, one question that I do like to end with is um, uh, on the going forward issue, uh, what do you see as your next project? Are you working on another book? Are you pursuing any of the issues here or turning to something else?
1: The- I am, yeah, and so this is actually uh, a piece of the account that we've talked about uh, briefly. The the explanations that are being gradually and and still very sketchily constructed. So, larger scale explanations of stem cell phenomena that we're we're starting to put pieces together. And what I my current project that will eventually be a book. It's still in the research stages. I'm building up this notion about explanation that's coming from these these themes of interaction and plurality, and then unification. I actually want to develop these themes less in connection to stem cell research in particular, and more in terms of querying, how do we gain understanding um, from putting different pieces together in this way? And so it's a question that's in some ways, more traditionally philosophical. I want to address this as a, as a way of thinking about scientific explanation that's not law-based or causal, but instead has to do with this mutual kind of connection, that there's something important about understanding that may, in fact, apply to many other sciences. I think it would apply to, to stem cell biology. And so that those themes have been at work in many chapters of this book, but I'm interested in exploring those themes more abstractly. So that, in addition to these, these other, there's other questions about stem cells that I'm also interested in pursuing. We've touched on a couple of them. But the main book project I'm interested in is is exploring this idea, this notion of explanation, and how ideas of social values, again, could illuminate it. Um, well, great.
0: Um, that sounds very interesting, too. And I, I certainly look forward to reading and possibly talking about that book as well, um, but this one unfortunately has to come to a close. Um, so I thank you for for giving us your time and talking about your your new book.
1: Thanks so much, Carrie.
0: Okay, bye bye. Bye. You've been listening to my interview with Melinda Bonnie Fagan, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Rice University. We've been talking about her new book, Philosophy of Stem Cell Biology, Knowledge in Flesh and Blood, which is just out from Palgrave MacMillan. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed
1: the podcast, and thank you again for listening.